Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doa Buckwalter, will introduce you to Michael Trout. Michael Trout founded the Infant Parent Institute, a private clinical practice, consultation, and training facility dedicated to understanding the relationship between early social experiences and how our lives form. Now retired, Mr. Trout remains active as an author and regular speaker on early development and problems of attachment. This episode is the fourth in a 12-part series with Mr. Trout. If you've missed any of the previous episodes, you can find them on iTunes, Google Play, or our Podbean page. Be sure to subscribe and tune in over the following weeks for additional episodes. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. So as we continue our discussion and talking about um, the revolt that the students had with Freiburg and the team, I'm reminded of um, my own training program in child parent psychotherapy when so many people were sitting around saying, are we doing this? What is this? We, we can't tell if we're doing this or not. <laughs> what are we supposed to be doing? And, you know, as a student, it is difficult. Like, we have to, we can't stand not having a feeling of efficacy somehow. And um, I remember even watching some of the films and thinking, particularly with my background as a TheraPlay therapist, which is very involved and very active from the get-go. But even just in general, not even along with that, watching these films thinking, this therapist, they're sitting there like a lump. I mean, <laughs> why don't we do something? Um, and then I would see when they would say something, I remember one film in particular where it was a mother that was shouting at you know, maybe a three-year-old. Um, and really, I'm thinking this is verbal abuse. This is terrible. And this therapist is just sitting there and shouldn't she intervene or something? I mean, how can she let this parent talk to her child that way? Doesn't she have a responsibility to do something? So she left it go on for a while, and then she quietly turned, and the mother, one of the things that she was yelling at the child was, stop crying. I don't want you crying. Stop that. Be a big girl. And the more she yelled at her, the worse it got. Um, And so I thought, you know, somebody should intervene here. So after a little while of this, when it sort of settled down um, somewhat, uh, she's the therapist turned to the mother and said, is that how people spoke to you when you were upset as a little girl? And the mother, Michael, I felt like the mother like changed before my very eyes. I mean, it was so impactful. The mother softened, she changed her, her whole the whole way she was holding herself changed. Like everything about her changed with that one statement. And I remember thinking, okay, maybe there's something to this waiting and watching business. Um, Because 
I have at times worked many, many months with a parent and not been able to see a shift like that. So that's uh, really what, what caused me to start. Well, I think being open, honestly, I think we were thinking about getting out of the learning collaborative for the model. We were just so appalled. Um, but that moment changed it for me. And it's a moment that should never be missed in any uh, young clinician's training. That moment where there is angst, where the student is sure or the young clinician is sure that there's got to be more to it, that there's more you should be doing. What a moment to learn about what it must be like to be a foster mom, or for that matter, to be any kind of a mom or dad who feels alone and helpless and without enough rules or structure or tools. And for a young, young person to miss that because a supervisor or a peer uh, joined them in pushing for answers instead of musing on the moment would, would really be a tragedy. It requires discipline and restraint and tolerating very uncomfortable feelings. And believing that this act of, quote, just sitting there like a lump, unquote, <laughs> is in fact not a passive position at all. It's incredibly active. Yeah, that's what I didn't understand. And when you when you say it's an incredibly active position, active at what? Well, first of all, being with capital B, capital W, which is probably manifested in the way the clinician is sitting, what he or she is doing with the eyes, uh, what's being demonstrated on the face which by the way is not being demonstrated on the face of the mother toward her child, but that's our goal. If we could put it in writing, we might say, see this face? The therapist would say to the mother, see this face, have this face when you're talking with your child. But we can't do that because that would be stupid and would never be done by the mother. So instead we just have the face. So it's active that way. We're slowly acquiring imagination along with the data, that is what's happening, but also I wonder why it's happening. And only then does the therapist come up with this possibility, which is not asserted as a truth because we don't know, but the possibility that mother's been here before, only in the other role. Mother was once the baby being talked to this way. And the therapist gets to inquire gently about whether that might have been. And that's why the change. By contrast, had the therapist simply asserted the obvious, gee, you know, you really shouldn't talk to your kid that way, or worse, quoted some literature, we find that talking to children this way is ineffective. There's this other model of talking to children. Let me explain that to you. We would have lost her completely. It was such a profound change um, from one gentle statement that it was really amazing. 
foster parents and adoptive parents and biological parents often frustrate us uh, who work in residential care or who even are part of the link to the child protection system in some way because we see parents often behaving in ways that appall us. And we have to know what to do when the behavior of parents is appalling. We don't have to declare it in our mind not appalling. We don't have to approve it or accept it. That therapist never once condoned the mother that you talked about, condoned the mother yelling at her baby to stop crying. That's not the point at all. But we have to know how to calm ourselves so that we can wonder about it, show some empathy long enough to see if the, the mother or father can come up with a little bit of their own. If only because maybe the only active thing we're allowed to do on this particular day is just care for the mother in the way we wish the mother would care for the child. Maybe that's it. But that for many is a tall order because the mother stirs up such feelings inside of them. And, you know, it also reminds me of when we were um, in the process of, of learning child parent psychotherapy, when Patricia Van Horn said, I would much rather have an adult therapist who wants to start also working with children than a child therapist who now wants to do child parent psychotherapy. It's much easier to work with people who have experienced with adults because the people who have started out with children and then tried to learn this often have great difficulty having that level of empathy required to have for the parent. And they overlain and over-identify with the child. I became famous for um, annoying and hurting the feelings of young clinicians in supervision with me. When in the very beginning, before we began, I would usually ask a question like, why do you want to do this work? What about this work is compelling to you? Uh, because I was looking out for the possibility that the drive was really some inane, general, and way too soft view that they, they love children. So sometimes there would be a little bit of hand flapping while the person answered, oh, I just love kids. And my response would be a very flat face. And then usually words something like, oh, really? And then a long pause as the student got very uncomfortable. And if there was nothing else forthcoming, I would say, and what do you think about grown-ups? What do you think about parents? Because the risk that you described, Pat, knowing about is a very real risk. That in some, um, I'm sorry, I can't think of the right adjectives, but some way that I don't like, we get over-identified with and attached to the idea of sweet little children and their need for protection. Yeah. Of course, of course they're sweet little children. And of course they're in need of protection. And so are their parents. That's the big difference um, is to understand that you are holding two people 
um, and sometimes two babies, two wounded babies. Um, yes, that. And so I think what what's coming up in my mind now is I feel in order to maintain that and to do that, um, you really have to have good supervision. If so I mean, you. yeah. So that you know, this kind of um, is the other piece of this is that you know, reflective supervision. It's not. Well, I think I worked for many years before I even ever heard of it. Um, and then when I did start understanding it and what people were like who were good at it, I found people around me saying, oh yeah, yeah, we get that. We learned about that in our, you know, in, the, in our master's program, you know, you just, and they really had no idea what, like I was talking about. They, 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 they were somehow thinking if we could just make a few utterances of, you know, how you might feel or how this might be affecting you, that was reflective supervision. Where my experience with reflective supervision was, as we talked about earlier in this series, a question that stops you in your tracks. To me, that is completely different than you just blabbing a little to your supervisor sort of checking the box for reflection. Here we're back to checking the boxes again. Something that goes beyond just your imagining how the mother or the father or the baby feels. And instead, the supervisor helps you discover a moment when you actually felt it yourself. Yeah. When you were that trapped or you were that helpless or you were without, without uh, an outlet or uh, a tool. Yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of those kind of questions going on in supervision. Um, so that's, that's something to be thinking about how to, to improve on that. So just maybe to, to wrap up our discussion today, what did other people have to say about this business of working with the babies that was that that was unfolding well that's why i mentioned earlier that i i was musing this morning about whether these times are different because my memory of those times just barely out of the 60s is that we all had incredibly open minds and so when i think about the answer to your question i think oh gosh everyone was fascinated uh, in the 70s by this new thing we were all talking about. And I'm sure that wasn't true. Uh, certainly there were lots of jokes about putting babies on couches and uh, there was lots of uh, vague remarks about trapping parents or how weird it was to go into homes or asking leading questions of parents and all that sort of thing. Um, and yet, I think everybody that in my world uh, was fascinated at the very least, even if they didn't understand it, they were fascinated. So people in the trenches working with the children and families maybe were the ones fascinated. Um, 
Yeah, but I remember I got a weird call out of the blue from an AP reporter in the early 70s who had somehow heard something about, actually it was that first uh, study case that I was describing a little bit the last session. Yes. And she wanted to, she wanted to go with me. She wanted to come to Michigan and go on a home visit. And I, of course, said that that will not ever happen. Uh, but uh, I can tell you a little bit about, about it. And from a, the position of a news reporter alone, which I thought was telling, she found this field fascinating and, and knew it would be to her readers. And it, be, it was picked up by AP and it hit the wires and everything. It, it, nothing came of it after that. But I think that sort of thing happened a lot. People, people on a bus, people on a train, people you met on the street would want to hear more. Because um, I think everybody sort of intuitively knew this had to be important, that we all came from that place, that we've all, we all have that in common with each other and with every abused baby, that we've been a baby ourselves. And if we, even if we haven't been abused, we've felt the feelings of being lost. And that made it interesting. Yes. In those early years, I was often invited uh, to come and speak to childbirth classes, childbirth education classes, which were very popular in those years. And those folks, you would think that the last thing they'd want to be thinking about is the mental health of their unborn child. Mm -hmm. all, they were absolutely fascinated. <clears throat> I don't think we um, have the same kind. I, I do think there's a difference in the culture. I don't think we have the same curiosity about many things that maybe was happening then. Even about questions of faith and everything, like the mystery is taken out of everything. Like there's no one curious about, it's almost like our culture now prizes having answers. Like, and you know, I have the right ones and you have the wrong ones. And so there's this like polarization in so many levels of our culture. And I suppose that would be tolerable, although pretty disgusting for, for me as a scientist and a clinician, but it is absolutely intolerable if it, if it trickles down to the consulting room. And I'm afraid it does, where the therapist also believes he or she has the answers and you, the mother or the father, don't. I think they wouldn't say that, but I think we function in that way and behave under that premise often. So I'm trying to decide if, if we have time for a few words about this, we may need to uh, continue the dialogue in our next meeting. Um, next time I wanna talk about the early efforts to apply this in daycare and hospitals and, and some of those arenas, foster care and adoption policy, which I think we, I, I really feel like that's an area we've failed many vulnerable children and parents and parents in that system so 
I think that's where we need to start next time. It's going to be a tricky question because it got political and um, unpleasant very quickly. Yes. The ideas were, began to be applied to research, for example, in daycare, as well as to practice, for example, with foster parents. Yes. Yeah, so that will be an interesting discussion and talk. Well, thank you for your, your time again today. And it's been wonderful as always. And I look forward to our next meeting. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. This episode is the fourth in a 12-part series with Mr. Trout. If you've missed any of the previous episodes, you can find them on iTunes, Google Play, or our Podbean page. Be sure to subscribe and tune in over the following weeks for additional episodes. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.